All right, so uh, we are, we did the first couple sections last week. I'm just going to reread those just to remind us because they're short, and then we will pick up with um, God the Father. So uh, we believe, so the Word of God, we believe that the Bible, consisting in 66 books, is the Word of God, fully God-breathed and without error in the original manuscripts and written by men carried along by the Holy Spirit. We believe that it has supreme authority and sufficiency in all matters of faith and conduct. The Trinity. We believe that there is one living and true God, an infinite, all-knowing, all-powerful spirit, equally existing, or excuse me, eternally existing in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We believe that these persons are equal in every divine perfection, that they execute distinct but harmonious offices in the work of creation, of providence and redemption, and that they equally deserve worship and obedience. Um, so that is what we talked about last week. Uh, we talked about a few scriptures. Uh, those two are foundational, really, to the rest. Right? And like we said, as we walk through this, there's kind of a, there's a progression. There's a logical progression of the doctrines as we work through them. So we just talked about the Trinity, and uh, today, Lord willing, we will get through the three persons of the Trinity. And uh, like we talked about last week, they are, they are one in essence, in, in substance, to use an old word, uh, and yet the distinct in persons, um, distinct in persons, and they um, execute distinct offices with regard to redemption. You can think of the, just as an example, you can think of the Father sending the Son to sin, and then the Spirit applying that work to people, right? They do different things. They're all oriented towards the same goal, and, um, and yet they do different things um, with regard to that, okay? So let's look at God the Father. Who wants to read the paragraph, God the Father? All right, a lot going on there, um, because it's God. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, any things that stick out to you in that that um, that paragraph, or that you have questions about? Oh, that's good. Um, so, the Father orders and disposes all things according to his purpose and grace. So, um, from a Calvinist perspective, what that would mean is that um, we believe that God decrees all things that comes to pass, uh, and not only is he decreeing what comes to pass, but he's actually, as it unfolds, involved in all of it, right? Um, it's, it's, it's coming to about, about because of God. Uh, even in, from an Arminian perspective, they would be fine with that language. Um, they would probably just mean, they would mean something different um, or different things by it. But the idea is, is that um, God's in control. Um, God's in control. Um, and 
he is doing all things in the universe uh, according to his own purpose and grace. So, does that help a little bit? No, no. So it's kind of a, um, we, yeah, when we think of dispose, we're like thrown in the trash, but we're thinking of it in the sense of like the king disposes like according to his will. He, um, he's got a will and then he's acting on it, right? Or he has other people uh, disposing his will, making it happen is the idea. So it's kind of an older use of that, that word maybe. So, okay, anything else in that section? So that language actually allows for both a um, Calvinist um, understanding that we, when we say that God foreknows um, as um, when we believe in the doctrines of sovereign grace, we mean that uh, foreknowing is always the object is a person, that God elects, that God loves someone from before the foundation of the world, uh, and not just people, but like it says here, all that's going to come to pass, right? It's his decree. Uh, it's going to happen. Uh, an Arminian would probably say something more like uh, God foreknows uh, in the sense that he knows what's going to happen and the responses that people are going to have. And so, like, in regards to people, he picks those people because he knows they're going to believe in him, right? Um, so it's a little bit different. It's a different sense of foreknow, but it allows for both beliefs because this is the member doctrinal statement. So we want, uh, we want it biblical, and yet we also want it wide enough to incorporate those who are believers and yet who uh, don't necessarily agree on everything we teach, which is the elder doctrinal statement, which we'll get to eventually as well. And there you'll see the language is way more tight um, uh, in, in what these things mean. So, yeah. Uh, let's look up a couple passages in regard to this. Um, again, there's a lot there. It would be great if you guys could go back, um, revisit them, relook at them. Um, just to see how it, how these paragraphs are a summary of that truth. First Corinthians eight six. First Corinthians eight six. One of the things in this language that you should pick up on is that the Father's in control. Like he's he's the one um, orchestrating, architecting doing these things. That's his role in the Trinity in general, if we were to paint a broad brushstroke with him. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Someone go ahead and read that. Yeah, so uh, I think that's NAS. Is that NAS, Gary? Oh, King James, okay. Um, here's what the ESV says, just to give hear, um, hear the language a little bit differently. So, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. You see the different language there? The Father, the stuff is from the Father, one God, the Father, and then those same things are through the Son. So from the Father, through the Son, 
Uh, so there you get to see a little bit, not only here we're talking about the father, but you also get to see a little bit of distinction in their roles. Uh, the father is the source, right? He's uh, from him are these things. And then the son is through him are these same things. They're both equally God. You can see that even here. There's one God. There's one Lord. That, that name for Lord is uh, the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament term Yahweh, right? So we're talking about God here. Both are God, but they do. Uh, the Father is from whom are things. And there's one God, one Lord, the Son, through whom are all things. Okay, so you get to see that a little bit there. It's a cool passage. So, uh, Ephesians one eleven. Yeah, go ahead. Aseity um, is a fancy word that basically means that. Um, trying to recall, recall the distinctness of aseity, but aseity is like God just is in and of Himself. He's total, and He's totally independent. So that would be more captured even in some of the things we talked about with the Trinity, right? So we looked up those passages, uh, Exodus 3, 13 through 15, where God reveals his name. Yahweh means he is. So God just is, uh, and he's independent. No one defines him. That's God's, the fancy term is God's aseity, okay? Um, he's totally independent and totally self-sufficient would be the language you would use with that. So, um, so. Uh, we're not so much talking about that right now. We're talking about who, um, we're talking about what does the Father do, and what does the Father do in distinction with other members of the Trinity? He's God. We see that clearly from 1 Corinthians 8, 6, but how does he, uh, in his role in the Trinity, what does he do? Um, here's just another one. Obviously, there's lots of passages here, but Ephesians 1, 11, in him, that's in Christ, that's the him there, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, that's the Father, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And what you see there is just that idea of God ordering and disposing, right? He is, he is working all things according to the counsel of his will. Um, that's what Ephesians 1.11 says. Um, so actually Ephesians 1, 1 through 14 beautiful passage. It's one long sentence in Greek, but you also see the Trinitarian nature of it, because you have the Son doing things, you have the Father doing things, and you have the Spirit doing things. So the Father predestines, uh, the Son redeems, the Spirit seals, just to put a very broad blanket on that passage. So, But in our case, we're interested in, we see that the Father works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that supports some of the language um, we have in our our paragraph. Okay, uh, obviously we could spend way more time here, uh, but just to keep us moving, I want to move us forward unless you guys have other comments or, or questions. All right, going once, going twice. All right. God the Son, Jesus Christ. We believe in God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who possesses all the divine excellencies, and in these is he is co-equal, consubstantial, and co-eternal with the Father. We believe in the incarnation of the eternal Son, in which, without altering his divine nature or surrendering any of the divine attributes, he made himself of no reputation by taking on a full and true human nature, yet without sin, 
We believe that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary and was thus born of a woman as Jesus of Nazareth, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the divine and the human, were joined together in one person without confusion, change, division, or separation. He is therefore truly God and truly man, yet one Christ, the Messiah, promised in the Hebrew Scriptures, the one mediator between God and man. We believe in his substitutionary atoning death, bodily resurrection, ascension into heaven, perpetual intercession for his people, and personal visible return to earth. So here we cover a lot of ground, and a lot of this language in here is uh, ancient. It is from, say, the Nicene and Chalcedonian creeds. So that language in kind of the second half of the paragraph, two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the divine and the human, were joined together in the incarnation in one person. Two natures, one person. That's critical. So it's, in a sense, it's the reverse of the Trinity, right? The Trinity, you have one nature, three persons. With Christ, you have one person in two natures. Um, but that language is Chalcedonian. Chalcedonian creed, if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's the, the council that happened in, okay, four... 451 or 481, I'm blanking on which one it is. You guys remember? Is it 451 or 481? Anyway, a long time ago, um, and uh, that language of without confusion, change, division, or separation, the idea is you can't, you can't like slice out uh, the natures. They're distinct, but they're not like, they don't blend together, but they become like a hybrid thing. Uh, they're not confused. Uh, they're not divided. They're not separated. They're uh, that's the mystery of the incarnation and what happens, which is amazing. Um, another old word that we don't normally use, consubstantial. <laughs> what does consubstantial mean? Any, any takers? <laughs> uh, well, well, if I take the con off the front of it, what do I got? Substance, right? Stuff, right? Consubstantial means same stuff. So what we mean by that is uh, the son has the same stuff uh, of the father. Uh, the, the Nicene uh, creed used the word homoousios, the, the same stuff, the same substance, the same whatever makes up God, Christ has, right? Uh, he's totally equal in terms of nature. That's what that's trying to communicate. Um, and so that's a well-established language in the ancient Christian creeds. Uh, along with the, a lot of the rest of it. Uh, what else do you see in here that's, that's cool, uh, that's interesting, that questions about? Remember, when we walk through this, it's not just, oh yeah, we cr crossed our doctrinal T's and dotted our I's. We want to do that, but this should bring our hearts to praise, right, because of who we see God is, right? Um, so even as you, you can remark on those lines, um, so questions, comments, praises, Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's do that by going to one of the passages I wanted to highlight, Philippians 2. Uh, one of the key passages in the New Testament for us understanding um, this, the understanding Christ and his natures. Uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, 
though he was in the form of God. Now, that word form, it's, it's like the structure of God, the schematic of God, right? So this isn't just like, oh, he looks a lot like God. It's like this is by form, we mean he is God, okay? So though he was in the form of God, he is God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The idea is he's not holding onto it with a death grip, the idea of being regarded equal with God. Um, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the idea in the picture from Philippians 2 is that um, Christ can't give up his godness. Some people look at this passion and say, well, God, uh, Jesus divested himself of his divinity. Or even, we, we probably wouldn't say that, but sometimes we, we hear even those um, people say, well, uh, Jesus gave up the exercise of his deity. Uh, he did neither. Um, actually, that's not what this is saying. It's just talking about reputation, right? God, God has the reputation of being God. Um, and he, Jesus had that from all eternity. He had the, the form of God. He is God. He has the reputation of being God. His, he was praised and worshipped by angels, from all, um, from, from, at least from the creation of the angels. He enjoyed love with the Father and the Spirit from all eternity. And yet he becomes man, and he takes, and really the passage just kind of steps you down and down and down and down, the humiliation of the Christ. Not that he gave up any of his divine attributes, nor even the exercise of his divine attributes. But what did he do? He essentially cloaked his deity in humanity, so he looked like he was of no account. He became a human, um, and he humbled himself. He became of less reputation by adding to himself a human nature, taking the form of, um, of a human, uh, which is when you meditate on that and you think about that, that is absolutely astounding. The incarnation, I mean, we're, we're straining our, uh, you know, even in this paragraph, we're straining our language as humans to try to capture what happened in the incarnation, uh, which was necessary to save sinners, um, to save you and to save me, that, the God, uh, that God, the eternal God, Forever, this isn't like a one-time deal. He has forever added a human nature to his divine nature. It's not like, all right, I finished my work, I'm done, I'm getting rid of this crummy human nature. No, he's still human and God, and he's forever human and God. Uh, in, um, he acts according to his divine nature. The one person of the Son acts according to his divine nature and according to his human nature. So Hal asked me an interesting question last week. We think about that. And you think about when Jesus says in the Gospels, I don't know the day or the hour. Uh, you, you know, no one knows the day or the hour, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. What's he saying? Um, the best way we can reckon it is that according to his human nature, his mind is limited um, according to his human nature. So the one person acting according to his human nature doesn't know the day or the hour, but according to his divine nature, he does. And you're like, how does that work? I don't know. That's just what scripture affirms, right? We don't know that experience. Jesus is the only being in the universe to have that experience. And yet that's how it works, um, which is just incredible. It makes your mind smoke um, when you start, start trying to think about it. So um, 
Does that help with the, the Carol, with the, yeah, good. Okay, others, questions on? Um, just, I mean, you look at the older creeds and they'll say that. I mean, it's... Sure. Well, I mean, we, we do share this with Catholics. We both believe Mary was a virgin. We don't believe that all the things they believe about Mary, right? But that's part of actually one of the essential Christian beliefs is that Mary was a virgin. Like, that's really important. Um, so it's just a way of... It's shorter than saying Mary who was a virgin, just to say the Virgin Mary. And it's traditional language. Uh, we, by that, we mean nothing, of, co of course, according to perpetual virginity or immaculate conception, or excuse me, um, we believe immaculate conception. What's that? Right, right, right. They believe she was immaculately conceived as well or something like that. Right. And we do not believe that, right? They even call, the Catholics call her the co-redeemer, co co-mediator with Christ. That's why you pray to Mary. We do not believe any of that. So, uh, but we do believe she was a virgin and, um, and when she conceived uh, Jesus, because that fulfills prophecy. It shows part of who she is. So, yeah. Yeah, uh, I think something along those lines, yeah. What's interesting, it's interesting to watch the history of doctrine, um, even with regard to things in the Catholic Church and how they developed over, over time and when it became dogma in the church. Uh, fascinating uh, and interesting and disturbing all at the same time. So, Okay, um, any other questions? Yeah, so... Um, not uh yes um he would be uh, yes and no right like he's he's hidden um he's kind of behind the scenes so to speak so even in isaiah where you get the suffering servant and the messiah and all of those things um so we believe all those things in fact that's why we uh yeah the messiah promised in the hebrew scriptures um so Behind even that phrase is all of those Old Testament passages that were promised the Messiah, and you get hints and inklings throughout the Old Testament that the Messiah is going to be God, and it becomes clearer and clearer as we get farther and farther along in the Old Testament. Um, the angel, or the, the, the messenger of Yahweh, otherwise known as the angel of the Lord, I think messenger of Yahweh is a better translation of that, but that's a whole other discussion. I believe that that's a pre-incarnate uh, manifestation of the person of the Son, he doesn't have a, his human nature yet, um, and yet he is the son, and he's given this title, Messenger of Yahweh. Um, different, even just faithful Protestant evangelical believers would not necessarily hold to that view of, a pre uh, of the Messenger of Yahweh being the pre-incarnate Christ, which is, that's fine. You don't have to believe that, but there are other passages like... Um, so we, we, we don't include, like, uh, those other things that's like, I didn't include verses as about, like, the messenger of Yahweh, because it's not something, you don't have to believe that to believe that Christ is the promised Messiah. Um, but, um, yeah, with that phrase, 
promised in the Hebrew, the Messiah promised in the Hebrew scriptures. We're just trying to say, yeah, there's a bunch of them in the Old Testament that, that point to who he is or will be. But they're hints and inklings. It's not clear. That clarity doesn't come until the New Testament. So, good. All right, a um, couple, uh, one verse, I mean, there are so many in here that you could go to, but the clearest New Testament verse of Jesus' divine nature, I mean, we read 1 Corinthians 8, 6, that was a, that's another clear one that, we, that we read, but John 1, 1, right, is just crystal clear, which is why there's often a fight over it, but it's it's as clear as clear can be um, in the original. So, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Well, who's this Word? We see it in verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, there's, there's John's description of the incarnation, right? The Word became flesh. He added to his divine nature a human nature. Um, so he's got two natures, um, one person. Okay, anything else on God the Son? Obviously, there's more we could say and talk about, but anything um, else uh, you see in that paragraph? Any questions? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And you see the early church, like leading up to the like the Nicene Creed, they're hashing that out. Like they're trying to understand what is the New Testament saying about Christ. And you've got the original Jehovah's Witnesses, the Arians, right? Like saying, no, he's just a super created being. Um, and it's like, no, no, no. Um, this is why we, we as the church confess this, right? We've hashed it out. We summarize what biblical truth is, and it's clear that he is God. So, all right, anything else on God the Son, Jesus Christ, going once? Um, yeah, I mean, it, the, there's definitely information about the Messiah, right? So, and the Messiah is going to be God. Uh, there are, and I would argue that the messenger of Yahweh in the Old, uh, Old Testament is, is divine, but it's not like it's as clear as saying, nor would a Jew have just directly gotten it like, okay, yeah, that's God, but that's the son. That's, they would, you can't say, by the end of the Old Testament, it's not like you can say Jesus is the son of God. Right? That has to come when the word, the revelation of the word, Jesus, comes in incarnate form. So we do know, what we know by the end of the Old Testament is there are, um, there are multiple persons in God. We know that, that we've got the messenger of Yahweh, we've got, aka the angel of the Lord, um, we've got the Messiah. So what you know by the end of the Old Testament is there's multiple persons in God, and yet one God, but you don't know you don't know that that is the sun um, until the sun comes. For, wh for which? 
Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I can give you a few of those um, and uh, pull those together. So, yep. Any others? All right. God, the Holy Spirit. All right, who wants to read it? Good. Um, just like we saw in the sun, remember each of these paragraphs about the persons were trying to emphasize their role. So the last one we saw uh, Jesus being sent, um, him redeeming uh, his, uh, his atoning death. We saw that in the last paragraph. In this paragraph, we're trying to emphasize, well, what's unique about the Spirit? You notice there's a stress at the beginning on uh, one, uh, the Spirit is just like Jesus. He's He's co-eternal, consubstantial with the Father and the Son. So it's one God, three, um, three persons. We're trying to emphasize with that language that this is God. Um, the Holy Spirit is God. Uh, but then you also see a stress on the attributes of personality and deity, uh, especially personality, including intellect, emotions, will, omnipresence, omniscience, omnipotence, and truthfulness. Meaning the Spirit's not like a force, or like some energy, that's not what the spirit, who the Spirit is. Um, he's a person. Um, you can grieve the Spirit. You can offend the Spirit. You can lie to the Spirit, which that only makes sense if he's a person. So we, the Holy Spirit's not an it, it's, it's a he. The, the Holy Spirit's he, right? And we use that language. Isn't that interesting? We, um, the Bible speaks of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit using masculine pronouns. That's just how Scripture talks about it. Um, so we, that's what we do, right? Um, he is the Holy Spirit. He is God. He is a person. Um, he is one of the three persons. Um, and then you see some of what he's coming to do, right? Uh, when we say that he's coming forth from the Father and Son to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's a lot of the language from John, the, the Gospel of John, because John really spells out a lot of what the Spirit's going to do. Um, there is stuff in the Old Testament as well, speaking of the New Covenant. In the New Covenant, the Spirit works in a new way. So by none of this language are we trying to say the Holy Spirit wasn't at work in the Old Testament. It was ways in that work happened in the New Covenant with Christ's coming. So that's why... We say, uh, subsequent to Jesus' ascension, 
Uh, it's not like we're saying that the Holy Spirit wasn't at work before that. He obviously was. But subsequent to Jesus' ascension, the Holy Spirit came forth from the Father and Son to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's what he's doing right now. And to regenerate, uh, which he did in the Old Testament as well. I believe that. We believe that. And to regenerate, sanctify, um, uh, grow us in, 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 uh, as Christians, um, emp empower all who believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, here's the key language for the new covenant. We believe the Holy Spirit indwells every believer in Christ. Uh, that's a new covenant reality, not an old covenant reality, of the Spirit indwelling every believer, uh, and that he is an abiding helper, teacher, and guide. Okay? Uh, questions. I tried to highlight a few things in there, but questions or comments on that. We'll go to some a couple verses here in a second, but how do you show that the Holy Spirit is God? Go to Acts five. One of the ways. Actually, there's another way from last week. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You can't blaspheme the way that Jesus is talking. You, you, he's talking about slander of God, so that's another way. But um, Acts 5, um, Ananias and Sapphira actually give us some help with this doctrine. So for no other better reason than... Uh, uh, but Acts 5, 3 through 4. Someone read that. Okay, who did Ananias and Sapphira lie to? The Holy Spirit and to God, right? Which means that the Holy Spirit is God. Implication, right? Is it directly stated in this passage that the Holy Spirit is God? Is it explicitly directly stated? No. So this is a good example where we not only believe what the scriptures explicitly say, but also what they necessarily logically imply right? If Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit and they lied to God, the implication is that, they that the Holy Spirit is God, right? And so we believe, not just from this passage, but from others as well, but this passage has its testimony. This is one of the reasons we believe the Holy Spirit is God. Well, 
at least in this passage, Peter's specifically highlighting the Spirit. So you lie to a person of the Trinity, you're lying to God, right? Because each person of the Trinity is God, right? You know, jutting back to the, the Trinity for a second, uh, sometimes it's helpful to just run through what is Scripture affirm. We believe Scripture affirms the Father is God. We believe that Scripture affirms the Son is God. We believe that the Scripture says that the Holy Spirit is God. We believe that the Father is not the Son. We believe that the Father is not the Holy Spirit. We believe that the Son is not the Holy Spirit. Uh, and we believe that there is one God, right? You, those are kind of like the biblical affirmations you, you make, right? The Father is not the Son, nor is he the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son. You show the distinctness of the persons, but the equality in terms of essence and their godness. So, yeah. Um, okay, uh, let's look at a couple other passages. Let's go to Romans 8. And again, it would be advantageous for you to go back and run through some of these passages uh, to build your understanding. It would be good just discussion time, uh, maybe as a family or just uh, if you want to discuss some of these things more. Okay, Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not, so Paul's speaking to the Romans, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So the idea is, you're in Christ, the Spirit dwells in you. You're not, if you don't, if the Spirit doesn't dwell in you, you you're not a Christian. That's why um, we talk about the fruits of the Spirit, right? Because if the Spirit is in you, He's going to change you. That's part of his role in the new covenant. And if he's going to change you, it's going to show like fruit in your life. So if you don't have the fruit of the Spirit, the implication is that you don't have the Spirit, which the implication is you don't have Christ and you don't know Christ, right? Um, so all of this fits together. But Romans 8, you really see that dynamic of when you're in Christ, the Spirit is in you. Um, what's that? Well, that's one of the things, yeah, that we're highlighting with this, right? So that when you trust in Christ, the Spirit dwells in you, and one of the things the Spirit does in your life is he grows you. And so that should be evident in your life, um, that, that growth. Uh, let's do one more. Let's do, go to John. There's a lot in the John, let's say John th uh, 13 through 17, a lot of good stuff in there, but there's a lot also about the, the Spirit as Jesus is preparing to leave. Uh, John 14, 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper uh, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So there, right in that verse, you see this part of the dynamic of being an old covenant versus new covenant believer. The old covenant, the spirit dwelt with, but never in. And here you see that the spirit, um, after Jesus' ascension, he will dwell in. He will dwell in a person. Uh, jump over to 15... Uh, 
25, 26, sorry, John 15, 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So the Spirit's going to come and bear witness to Jesus um, through the proclamation of the gospel, but he's also going to directly work on people's hearts. Um, 16, um, yeah, go to 16, 8. This is, I'm going to actually back up to seven because this is kind of an amazing statement that Jesus makes. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. So it's better that Jesus goes away and you get the helper rather than that Jesus just stayed there. Isn't that amazing? That having uh, the ministry of the Holy Spirit um, is better than if the Spirit didn't come and Jesus just stayed along. That's amazing. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, uh, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Now, I believe he's speaking only to the apostles in this case. That's who he's talking to at this point, the eleven. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear to hear them now, or you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So there you see the spirit working through the apostles to give further revelation, which comes to us by way of the New Testament. Um, so that's that's. Um, part of what's going on there. And there's much, much, much more we could say about the Spirit, um, but there are a few key passages. Uh, what questions do you have or comments? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And some of that, like you say, it's, it's about the fulfillment of prophecy. So even when does the Spirit come? Pentecost, right? And 40, well, 49, 50 days after Passover, right? What is the Feast of Pentecost? What's the Feast of Pentecost all about? like in the Jewish realm, in the Old Testament. It's a Old Testament feast. What's Pentecost all about? Ashley knows. What? First fruits. There it is. First fruits, right? That's intentional because um, really what God is doing there is he's saying, here's the first fruits of the... What happens that day? A bunch of Jews get saved, actually. Some proselytes to Judaism, yes, but a bunch of Jews get saved. It's a first fruits of the harvest of Israel, the fullness of which will happen later. Because the promise of the new covenant is first and foremost for Israel, 
And the promise with the Spirit is that one day the whole nation's not going to know God and the whole nation's going to have the Spirit dwelling in them. Well, that didn't happen on Pentecost, but the first fruits of that happen and the fullness is going to happen later, at, uh, which will correspond to the Feast of Booths, which was, uh, yeah, that's right, isn't it? you just studied this, right? Um, Feast of Booths, which is associated with the, second, with the first exodus, the second exodus, and really the culmination of the harvest. Um, so God is doing some of these things of timing to fulfill patterns and prophecy um, in the Old Testament. So amazing stuff. All right, anything else on the Spirit? Yes, David. Cool. Right on. Is it? Wow, it's already been that far since Easter. That's amazing. All right. Um, let's, what's that? Yeah, 50 days. Um, that's what Penta and the Pentecost means. Yeah, 50 days. Uh, let's do mankind really quick, as quickly as we can. Um, we believe that mankind... So you see the progression here. We dealt with the scriptures, which is how we know about God. Then we talk about God. God is Trinity, the three persons of God. Now let's talk about man, right? That's always God has priority over man, right? He's the creator. Um, but now we, let's start talking about um, the pinnacle of, of his creation. We believe that mankind was directly and immediately created by God as his image according to his likeness. Um, in two distinct and fixed genders of male and female in order to glorify him through their distinct roles and enjoy God's fellowship. Man and woman are co-equal before God in terms of inherent value, dignity, and personal responsibility. Mankind was created free of sin with a rational nature, intelligence, volition, self-determination, and moral responsibility to God. We believe that in Adam's sin of disobedience to the revealed will and word of God, mankind lost its innocence, incurred the penalty of spiritual and physical death, became subject to the wrath of God, and became inherently corrupt and utterly incapable of choosing or doing that which is acceptable to God apart from divine grace. With no recuperative powers to enable him to recover himself, mankind is hopelessly lost." Uh, some key verses, we're not going to read them, but Genesis 1, 26 through 28. If you want the fundamental who we are as humanity, Genesis 1, 26, 28. God created man in his image as his likeness, uh, which has a, a, a description of rule in glorifying God and also fellowship uh, with God. Uh, man's depravity, Psalm 14, 1 through 3. There is no one who does good, not even one. Uh, Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and... Um, uh, and, uh, oh, come on, I'm blanking here. Desperately wicked. Uh, who can understand it? Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, describing mankind. Uh, mankind is uh, born uh, in sin, and it's born under the dominion of Satan because of the fall, um, and only by God's grace can be rescued. Um, there's a couple things that we needed, uh, like historically have not been in confessions of faith concerning mankind, namely like a language like this, in two distinct and fixed genders. Uh, like people just got that, but now we have to add it in to be very, very specific to say to our culture, here's what we're not. We're not believing in transgenderism. We're not believing in homosexuality. Um, we 
we believe the biblical record as far as men and women being distinct and having distinct roles um, and, um, and working together through those distinct roles. They have inherent dignity and value. So there's no distinction in dignity or value between men and women, uh, but there is a distinction in role. Kind of like the three persons have distinct, they're distinct and yet, and they have distinct roles and yet they are one God, right? They have equal value and dignity. It's a sim- there's an analogy between what's going on in God and his creation of men and women as his image. Um, so anything else that you see there under man, mankind? Questions? Well, I mean, that would be uh, Genesis 1, 26 through 28, right? Male and female, he created them. Boom, done, end of discussion. Unless you want to twist scripture, in which case you're a heretic, so stop it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that, what's weird about all this in our culture, right, is you have professing Christians saying that male and female, like that's a, the transgender thing is okay or homosexuality is okay. And, you know, if, if, such, if someone ever said that, well, let's say if someone came and said, I want to be a member of your church, but I don't, I don't believe this, we'd say, sorry, can't be a member of a church. In fact, we would call, we would talk to them, but we would probably um, start questioning their salvation, really, right? Because you're twisting scripture. And men and women are having that distinction and those roles. That's actually fairly important to the biblical storyline. Um, so, and to family, and to how God uses family in the biblical storyline. So, um, that's a serious issue. Even though it's like, well, it's not touching God's nature, yeah, but it's touching ours, and it's it's serious business actually. So, yeah. Uh, any other thoughts or questions on mankind? Oh, yeah. Well, what you see is what's happening in our culture is Romans 1, right? It's, it's God's wrath being unveiled. It's utter, utter foolishness and insanity. Um, it is absolute insanity. And um, God has built a, a fabric into the world he created, and the world is unraveling, and people are unraveling because they don't submit to him and to his word and how he created them, um, whether male or female. Yes. Right. Yep. Uh, yep. Yeah, absolutely. And, and really, it's part of that, it mentions in here, mankind is under God's wrath. That's our natural state. So, in a sense, we shouldn't expect anything else, right? Um, but we're really seeing it in a prevalent way. It's not, Romans 1 doesn't say God's wrath will be revealed, although that's true too. It's God's wrath is being revealed because of the unraveling um, that, that's happening, with, specifically with regard to gender stuff. That's what Romans 1 talks about. So 
We need to understand that in our culture, that um, our, our culture is increasingly under God's wrath, and it's being displayed. And for good reason. We are a wicked culture. Um, we um, have murdered millions of unborn lives. We have done horrific and terrible things as a culture and as a nation, so we shouldn't be really that surprised at God's wrath against us. We still love people. We still proclaim to them the truth of the gospel, and yet um, I'm not optimistic about the future. We just say it that way. So, Isn't that a great ending? Mankind is hopelessly lost. That's, that's how the, the paragraph ends. <laughs> but there's hope. There's salvation, and we understand that, and we understand that God is merciful and gracious. We're we're no better than a, um, I'm equally as sinful as an LGBTQ plus person um, or homosexual, or I'm equally as sinful. I equally deserve God's wrath, and yet it's only God's mercy through Christ, um, through the Trinity working to redeem me that I have any hope. It's all due to God's grace and mercy. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah, that's good news. We pray to that end, yeah. All right, let's pray in close. Father, we are hopelessly lost apart from you. We, we are marred, broken. Uh, we're not innocent people. Uh, we are sinners and deserve your wrath, and uh, we see that unfolding in our culture, and it is, we are no better. Um, we, it, is, it is only your sheer mercy and grace in calling us and redeeming us through Christ uh, causing your spirit to dwell in us. Oh, Lord, we want the same for our generation. We want the same for our community. We want the same for our coworkers. So, Lord, give us boldness to proclaim the truth, courage in the face of an evil and twisted generation. And, Lord, that you would please save some. Um, Lord, you desire to save people, and so we pray that we would see conversions. Um, even um, in the next couple years, as things unravel, that that would push people towards you and not uh, away from you, Lord. Help um, give us boldness to speak. Help us to speak the gospel clearly and faithfully, and pray that you would save souls. We thank you for this time this morning. Grow us in understanding you and doctrine, not just to have knowledge, but so that knowledge might leapfrog us into praising you and worshiping you and delighting in you. And Help us to do that now as we come for the gathering together with your people, the church. We ask these things in your name. Amen.